Let's get right into it, church. We are uh, in uh, ending our study of the Gospel of Mark. And if you can remember, some of you, it might seem like it was a million years ago that we started it. But yeah, here we are. We have gone through 15 chapters, the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the Gospels. And we know that Mark has a really unique and fun, I think, writing style where he always seems like he was getting to the point. And we're going to see that play out again today. Because how else would the story of Jesus end except with the resurrection? And so that is our passage for today. It is the last chapter of Mark. It is Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. Just the first eight verses of Mark. And I'll give a little sort of a preface and parentheses about that in just a second. But that's where we are today. So in, in a few minutes, when I read it, it'll be up on the screen. But if you're following along in your own Bibles, it's Mark 16, 1-8. And it is the account of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. You remember in the last few weeks, just leading up to this, we saw Jesus uh, in the garden. We see Him betrayed. And we see Him tortured. Uh, and we see Him crucified. And we see Him you know, brought before a, a mock trial of the religious leaders who finally feel they have him in uh, their grips. And we see uh, Jesus' last uh, teachings and words to his disciples at the Last Supper. And we see all these things happening. And, and now, of course, even last week we saw Christ on the cross and his, then his death and burial and the significance of that. And then today we come to the climax of it. This this story, this account, this factual account of the resurrection of Jesus, church, it's not just sort of an addendum. It's not just one little part of the story of Jesus. This is the climax of the life of Jesus Christ and His ministry to, uh, to us. And this is what it's all about. It's often said that the resurrection of Jesus, Him coming back from the dead, is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is what the apostles preached. It was the gospel they preached. You see it all throughout Acts. Remember way back when, when we went through the book of Acts together? We saw that often. Whenever one of them was preaching, it always centered on the resurrection. And there's reasons for that. And we're going to look at that today. Of course, we talked all about that on Easter Sunday. But here we are again in Scriptures, and so never going to shy away from an opportunity to preach the resurrection of Jesus. Because isn't it also true that for centuries, for 2,000 years, the church did not meet on Friday as important as the cross is. The church meets on Sunday remembering the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we're here today on a Sunday morning. Well, we know we can meet at any time, but in, in, in following along with the tradition of the ancient church and the early apostles we meet on a Sunday morning because of the resurrection. But you know, there's many different ways to see the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. All four Gospels, of course, included and teach it. Mark is the one that's, that's most uh, concise, as he usually has been. And Mark just gives a brief account of what happens And there's many ways to have a perspective or to look at the resurrection of Jesus. And we can see it from God's perspective. And we can see it from the perspective of the disciples who were wallowing in in their loss of Jesus. We can see it from the perspective of the angel 
who rolled away the stone. We could see it from the perspective of the women who were first there. And that's what we're going to do today. But specifically looking at one verse from our passage. But you know what happens is the women are going to the tomb for one reason, but then everything changes. Have you ever been in a situation where you walk into, into an event or, or, or some kind of situation and you have one idea of what it's going to be like, but then it's completely different from what you expected? Did you ever just have your expectations completely blown away? And you go into a situation, you like, you just sure you know how it's going to turn out, and then things are completely different. You say, wow. And so I remember uh, talking about, you know, asking you guys to pray for our uh, camp for next week down at Harvey Cedars with our high school students. I remember it was actually 12 years ago when uh, I first became uh, a youth pastor at a particular church, and we started going to Harvey Cedars with our our youth group, and we would take a bunch of students. At the time, we had about 60 students, and we'd go there. And, and uh, I remember uh, my first week as the youth pastor at this church was the week of Harvey Cedars, was the week of the student camp. And so, of course, I had, um, you know, just was new to the church and, and knew a couple of the leaders and the people, didn't know any of the students yet, and of course, didn't know any of the parents or hardly any of the leaders. And so my actual first day on the job, as it is, was down at Harvey Cedars. It was the middle of that week. And so I got there on a Wednesday, and I met up with the one leader that I knew. And it was an interesting way to kind of start my, my ministry to the, to the students was them at camp already. It's, it's quite special and unique and out of that environment. And so I remember walking up to, um, who is now a good friend, Scott, who was a youth leader at the time, and uh, I, I met him there, and he, he welcomed me and embraced me, and, and he said, welcome to, uh, to Harvey Cedars and welcome to youth ministry. I was so excited, and see, I had in my mind an expectation of what that was going to look like, that I was going to get to hang out with students, junior and senior high kids, never so crazy about the junior high kids, but that's okay, that's a whole, we love them to death, it's a very different experience spending a week with the junior high kids. They went to senior high, different kinds of drama and all kinds of things, right? But it's all good, all of it. And so I had expectations of what that would look like, that I would spend a week with them just hanging out, we'd be playing games, we'd be talking about Jesus, they'd be kind of just sharing about how much they love God and want to learn their Bibles, and I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And so I meet with Scott, and uh, he says, welcome to Harvey Cedars. Let me fill you in on what's been going on. And I thought to myself, what's Wednesday morning? What could be happening? They just got there Monday. But evidently a lot happened in two days. And so again, this was 12 years ago. There was a student, uh, a girl in our youth ministry, who had a boyfriend, not a believer, a boyfriend who was not there at the time and he was older. And the night before, that Tuesday night, he showed up, actually it was the Monday night, the first night of camp, he showed up at camp with a gun on him. Now, not intended to do any harm, but he had a gun, and he showed up to this Christian camp. And as you can imagine, the weapons were not allowed at camp, right? And so immediately there was a lockdown, and before any of the leaders could get a hold of the students, right, to tell them, hey, look, you know, here's what's going to happen, students started calling parents, and of course parents were freaking out, because they're hearing from students, 
all kinds of stories about weapons on campus and all kinds of stuff. And it turns out he also had some drugs on him, if you just want to throw that in there. And so nothing came of that situation. He didn't do any harm, and he was escorted peacefully off of campus. But immediately the first night of of high school summer camp, there was a lockdown, and students were in their room, and parents were freaking out, calling Scott and all the leaders, what's going on with my kids? We just sent them there. What kind of camp is this? And I said, wow. And then he said, let me tell you what else happened. Okay, so we had one of our students, a senior, who was dating a girl from another church that was also at camp, right? And so that's, that, that, that's, that's usually not good when you have two students that are dating and they're at camp. That causes all kinds of issues, especially they're going to different churches. Now, we had rules at the camp, as we still do. Uh, to be respectful of one another in all of the campers. You know, if you're in a relationship, okay, and you can't hold hands in public and you're not allowed to be together alone, there's got to be other people around. And all these basic things that we put into place to just make sure everything's appropriate and good for what we're there really to do and to focus on relationships with Jesus. Well, this student who also happened to be one of my students in a youth group, and wow, what a great youth group I walked into here. He was being inappropriate with the girl, nothing crazy, but they were going off alone and holding hands and, and uh, just being inappropriate around the other students, like showing how much they were in love and all this stuff that we might think is, you know, oh, innocuous and not such a big deal. But at camp, we have these rules in place. And so I got to meet the youth leader of one of the other churches where the girl went. Had never met him, so I got to meet him. This was literally 10 minutes after I got there. Scott told me about the incident with the gun and the drugs. And then he says, we have to go into this meeting right now to talk to this other youth leader because here's what's happening. And so we walked into this meeting and I said hello and uh, met this other youth pastor. And he was all business. And, um, and he said, it's good to meet you. I said, yeah, I've been here for about 10 minutes. What's going on? And so he proceeded to tell me that that he really believed that we needed to send these students home because that was the rule. That's what was going on. And, uh, and I was like, well, first of all, I didn't know the rules there. I didn't even know the student of mine, let alone uh, his girlfriend. I didn't know this youth leader. And so we're trying to work things out. And it, we were there for about an hour and we figured out, okay, we're going to let them stay. We'll give them a warning. We'll put some other things in place. It all worked out great. But as you can imagine... I had this idea walking into this situation of what it was going to look like to be a youth pastor and we're going to have this great time at camp. And it didn't quite turn out the way that I expected. The rest of the week was awesome. God did amazing things in the life of the students and it's an amazing place we continue to go back to every year and God shows up and changes students' lives. But you never know what you're going to walk into and the kind of things that some of the students are struggling with and dealing with and you you don't know what to expect. But isn't it also good with God to sort of expect the unexpected? And that's what happened with the women. They were going to the tomb. We'll see this in a moment. They were going to the tomb to bring spices to take care of Jesus' dead body as they did traditionally. But things didn't work out the way they anticipated that morning, did they? So let's do this. Let's read it. It's Mark 16, 1 to 8. 
And uh, we'll focus on one particular verse for us this morning. And so here's what it says in Mark 16, 1 to 8. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And then entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And of course, they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Ever notice in our study of Mark how often Jesus Or the disciples told somebody, hey, don't say this or do this, and they did just the opposite. (laughs) It happened often. We do that too. But here is Mark's brief account. Now, of course, like I said, all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story. They all have a lot more to say. And so just for, for time constraints, we can't look at all of them, but it's a great study to go to go back and look at each of the Gospel account of any of the the, the stories of Jesus, but especially this one. Because then you get the full view of what was going on. And nothing contradicts each other. and It just gives you just a great picture of exactly what happened that morning. Fills in some some detail. And so I I just want to highlight a few things to kind of of set the context and then put aside. Then we're going to look at one verse. And so in your Bibles, you should see that the Gospel of Mark probably does not end at verse 8. Is that true? If you're looking at your Bibles, you probably see something, whatever whatever version you have, some kind of asterisk or something in parentheses that says some manuscripts don't include verses 9 to 20. Okay? And I'm going to tell you exactly why that is, and here's the answer. Okay? We don't know what the answer is. How's that? Is that good? Now let's move on. So, but here is the, the real deal, okay? The earliest manuscripts that we have, meaning the earliest um, copies of Mark's um, gospel from the 4th century, so that's the 300s, okay, A.D., about 200, uh, 250 years after Jesus was uh, um, dead and buried and risen. Those manuscripts that we have do not include verses 9 to 20, But yet, there are many manuscripts that have been discovered through archaeological digs since then that do include it. And so scholars have debated this for all these years, these centuries. But here's the debate, because I want to make sure we understand. The debate is not, are verses 9 to 20 scriptural? What it says in verses 9 to 20 is elsewhere found in the New Testament. So 
it is scriptural, it is the Word of God, but we find it elsewhere. The debate is, did Mark write those words? Because if we were to go on to read it, you would see it, and do this as your own study, it's, it seems very disjointed from the rest of Mark, especially the first eight verses, because he ends with the amazement of the women, and isn't that just like Mark, to kind of end with this exclamation point and then kind of leave you hanging? But the rest of, of what we have, 9 to 20, doesn't seem to fit. And again, you know, there's plenty of, of, of very brilliant scholars that think it should be in there, and Mark did write it, and others that don't. That's not for our debate or discussion for this morning. But I wanted you to know basically what the deal is with that. So 9 through 20, you can read it. It's in your, your Bibles, I'm sure, in some way. Whatever you see in there, the story of the other people um, seeing Jesus and then him sending them out, it's found elsewhere in Scripture. But the question is, did Mark actually write it? Should, be, should it be a part of his letter, of his gospel? And so um, I have chosen not to cover that. But again, it's found elsewhere. But I, it seems to me the most logical, and again, you can debate back and forth, is that he does end at verse 8. That was his intention. Perhaps scribes didn't like the way that he ended it and added other words that made sense because the other Gospels had it. It's very possible. But regardless, you can read 9 to 20 and be rest assured that um, it is historical fact and we see it elsewhere in the Bible And so that's all good. But for our purposes today, we are ending our study of the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. Okay, so I wanted to set that out, and so we can move on. Also notice a couple other things real quick. So so that the women had gone to the tomb, okay? Women were with Jesus all along. There was a large group of very devout, loving women that followed Jesus every step of the way. And we see them mentioned many times. They don't always get the attention that they should, but these women, some of whom are named, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome and many others, they were there all along the way. This large group of women who were disciples, followers of Jesus, they were devoted to him. They worshipped him. They cared for his needs and they loved him. They were there, if you remember from a week or two ago, it said, the scripture said that they were there watching the crucifixion because they wanted to make sure that his body was taken care of after. They wanted to see where he was put, where his tomb was, so they could care for his body even after he died. These women cared for and were devoted to and worshipped Jesus. And the women were the first ones to arrive at the tomb, the first ones to whom Jesus appeared, the first ones to be actual missionaries, because he said, go and tell the others what has happened. Tell them I'm going to meet him in Galilee. Like I said, these were the women. And you've probably heard this, but it is so important to realize, in that society at that time, the testimony of women meant nothing. you believe that? That was the case in that society at that time. What a tragedy and how horrific that was, but that was the case. But all the more reason to just be in awe and wonder of what God did that He chose these women to be the first ones to see Him and the first ones to go and tell 
knowing that many men and leaders would not even, you know, give the time of day to what they said. Oh, they're probably emotional and crazy and all that. That was the thought back then. But how great is our God that he would choose the women to be so instrumental. Is that awesome? And so we see that here today. That it says that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, these devout followers of Jesus, they bought some spices to go anoint his body. That's what they did. So they didn't embalm dead bodies like we might do today. What did they do? They actually wrapped spices around them. It was mostly for the smell of the decaying body. It was the tradition. And some scholars say it could be up to 100 pounds of spices they would use. But it was actually an act of devotion on their part and love for him. Remember, they still, they didn't understand. They went expecting that his body, his dead body would be in the tomb. Because they bought these these spices, that's why they went, to care for their Lord whom they loved so much. Still confused about why he had to die and all that. But their mourning turned out to be very different than what they expected. And so we see that afterwards, and I'm going to get to our verse. It's actually verse 3 we'll focus on. We see at the end of this, this passage that the angel says, Go tell the disciples and Peter. Kind of singled out Peter, isn't that cool? Peter kind of went through a lot, didn't he? I mean, Jesus said that, you know, he was going to deny him. Peter's like, no way, you know, you're crazy and, and I'll die for you. And then Peter did deny him. And remember that powerful scene? We even saw a clip from the, the Passion of the Christ where, where, and I believe this is probably really what happened, that Jesus was being beaten for the very first time and Peter was out there denying him while Jesus was saying, yes, I'm, I'm God. Jesus, like, uh, Peter says, I don't even know you. How powerful that was. What it did to Peter. But then when he realized what he had done, it changed his life forever. Especially we see after the resurrection when it really all clicked for Peter, especially he became this amazing spokesperson, ambassador for his Savior Christ. What a life-changing event the resurrection was in the life of Peter. So it's interesting that the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter, almost like, and that guy Peter, <laughs> crazy Peter, like tell him too because he needs some, he needs some redemption right here. He needs to feel good. He needs to know what's happening. And so he says, go, uh, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Because you remember back in Mark 14, Jesus said, when I come back, he basically said, meet me in Galilee. Okay, go to Galilee. It's where this all started, remember? Where um, he started calling the disciples, where so much of the ministry happened. He said, let's go back there. So after I'm risen, I'm going to meet you there. But wouldn't you know it, these women who were so devoted and they heard this, they ran back. It says they said nothing. They were afraid. At first they were just like in awe. That's what it was. They weren't afraid of, of, of the angel or God, but they just couldn't even know what to say. But when they finally did, you know the disciples, they just said, you're crazy. They didn't believe them. It took them almost two weeks. It took them about eight to ten days before they actually left Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and went to Galilee. They spent that whole week or more just kind of wallowing in self-pity and saying, no, this can't be true, this can't be true. And, and see, even we see Jesus appearing to many. It took the disciples a long time. See, the women were right there. It took the men a while. I'll just leave that where that is. So. But here's the verse we wanted to look at. Verse 3. Verse 3 says this. Very simple. 
When the women were heading out that morning to the tomb, expecting to see Jesus' body, to anoint him, to wrap him with the the spices they bought, it says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, Mark is the only one that gives that account that the women said that. But let's just think about that for, for a bit. Who will roll the stone away for us? They were concerned that they were going to have access to Jesus. Because they knew that there was this big stone covering it. It was tradition. But they knew that's the way it worked. And so he was entombed in a rock that was carved out. And there was a huge stone. We don't necessarily, necessarily know what shape it was. Whether it was big and round or square or oblong. We don't know. But... We know, if you remember from last week, that Joseph of Arimathea, who was sort of a secret disciple, he asked Pilate for Jesus' body, put him in his own tomb, and it says he put the stone there. Now, traditionally, what would have happened, there would have been a big divot right there. So he would have moved this big stone, and it would have fell right into the divot. And how are you going to move that? I mean, some people estimate that this stone weighed two tons. So he obviously would have had help to move that in. But Joseph and Arimathea and whoever else helped to move this stone, this huge rock, and it's now sitting in a divot. Just think about how you're going to move that. And so the women are going because they're devoted. But then they start to think, well, who's going to roll that stone away so we can go in and tend and care for Jesus' body? So they're thinking of that. Let's just think about that question. Who will roll the stone away? See, on that morning, their devotion was so evident. They had been at the crucifixion. These women had followed him for years. But here they are, and there's this very practical concern. How are we going to attend to our master's body? But it kind of makes us think, doesn't it? It's the same kind of question we ask. How do we find God? I mean, it's really what they were asking is, how do we see Jesus? How are we going to have access to God? How do we discover Him? Where is He? How can we actually get to Him if there's this big obstacle in our way? We might ask ourselves the same question. How are we to be reconciled and reconnected to God? How do we gain access to Him? It's actually been the question for humanity since time began. How do we get reconnected to our Maker? So they ask themselves this question, who's going to roll that stone away for us? Because they realized it was too big of an obstacle for them to do themselves. See that? They realized they couldn't do it themselves. So let's consider this first. The stone that had blocked the Lord's tomb, but was now rolled away. It would have been enormous. Rolled in by Joseph of Arimathea and others. No matter what shape it was, when the women got there, It had been moved. They didn't move it. The disciples, they certainly didn't move it. The religious leaders wouldn't have moved it. The Roman guards who were there were guarding it. Of course, they wouldn't have moved it. But yet, it was moved. It would have completely blocked the entrance. No way to squeeze in. No way to say, we'll just kind of knock it over. Sometimes we think, how are we going to get back to God? Maybe there's a way I can work out sort of my relationship with God on my own. Maybe there's a way I can squeeze myself in and 
just figure out a way to, to reconcile who is God and who am I. And, and there's a lot of people in our lives, don't we know, that say, yeah, me and God are good. Like he knows me, I, I, I have an idea of who he is. Has no basis on scripture, or very little. But yet we do that sometimes too, don't we? Even after being believers, we might sometimes begin to think that way. Well, how, how can I keep God from, from, from you know, punishing me? How can I stay connected with God? How can I keep these obstacles away? I mean, even think of this. There would have been an official Roman seal, Herod's seal, on that tomb. So if anybody tried to get in, they would have known the seal was broken. But who broke the seal? God did. Because He moved the stone. Kind of harkens back to our discussion about the veil, the curtain in the temple. That at the moment of Jesus' death, when He said it was finished, that curtain was torn in two. From top to bottom, who did that? God did. Who rolled the stone away? God did. See, they got there and they were worried, who's going to remove this obstacle between me and God? They got there, it had already been done for them. They felt like they were cut off from their Lord who they had been following. But yet the way in was provided for them. People throughout the centuries have tried many ways. Philosophy, good works, Remember in Scripture, building a tower, the Tower of Babel. Whatever it is to try to get back to God, people have tried many different ways. But yet, can't we see in this very simple but profound illustration and story that it is God who provides the way? That we cannot earn it or work on it ourselves. See, we have always known as people that there was something beyond the grave. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in our hearts. Even if you don't know it yet, if you're not yet a believer, or the people that you know that aren't believers in Jesus, they have it in their hearts, God put it there, this desire to know where they came from and who is their maker. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it that way, that He has set eternity in our hearts. So there is a longing in everybody's soul to be reconnected, to not have a stone or any kind of obstacle between them and God, but people don't know what that stone looks like or how they can gain access. But yet we know, don't we? Because God rolled the stone away. God did it for them. In Genesis 29, we won't read it, but there's this really interesting story. Just the first three verses of Jacob, if you remember way back, Jacob uh, meets Rachel at a well, and there was all these sheep that were there, and that's how they... They were sustained by this living water from the well, but the well was covered with a huge stone. And so Jacob goes and says, we're going to remove that stone so the sheep can have water, because that's what would happen. The shepherds of the sheep would remove the stone so the sheep would have access to the living water. The great shepherd removed the stone so the women and then all of us that have access to Jesus, the living water. He did it for us. Who rolled it away? Matthew's account says an angel did it. It says an angel sat on the stone when they got there. 
in, in Mark's account, they got in and the angel was in the tomb already. Mark, uh, in Matthew's account, the angel was sitting on the stone. Can you picture it? He's like sitting on the stone that was rolled away as if to say, now what? Right? So now, what, now what's the issue? The tomb is, go ahead, go check it out. You have direct access. We took care of that big stone for you. Right? God is the only person with the authority to do it. The only one who could break that seal because at the time Herod was the highest authority in the land, the only one who could break the seal was somebody with higher authority than Herod. God is the highest of all authorities. You know, there was angels all throughout Jesus' life. An angel promised his birth. Angels proclaimed the moment of his, of his birth. They attended him after his temptations. But you notice there was no angels present told in our stories at the crucifixion. Why? Because Jesus at that moment was separated from the Father. Talked about that. It was that moment, although temporary, that moment that God had to turn His face away from His Son because His Son, the One who knew no sin, became sin for us. So at that moment, there was no attending of angels for Jesus as He became sin. But now... Now at the resurrection, the angels are back. They're moving the stone. Jesus had said when he entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week, of Holy Week, do you remember what he said? He said, as the people worshipped and the religious leaders said, Jesus, you better tell your followers to stop praising you so much. And Jesus said, if they don't, the rocks are going to cry out. We have this stone, this great rock that cries out. For who Jesus truly is. And finally, the great significance. That this stone was rolled away for us. See, the women who first approached the tomb, they had lost hope, just like all the other disciples. They believed their Lord was dead. But at that moment, they saw the stone rolled away. They looked in, they peered into the tomb. And the angel said, why are you afraid? You're looking for Jesus. Look at where he was laying. He's not here. He's risen. See, that goes immediately from despair to hope. And that's the beauty of the salvation gospel. The gospel of grace is that we go from being people of despair to people of great hope. We are now called children of light, people of hope. At that moment, that stone was rolled away. It was completely dark in there. The stone rolled away and light, the morning light, the dawn of a new day, that light would have shone right in and blasted through so the women could see the evidence that He was not there. He had risen. That's what happens when we believe and put our faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation and eternal life. In Him and Him alone. That's what happens. We move from being people of darkness to people of light. It says our eyes are open. That stone was rolled away and they were able to see into the tomb that Jesus was not there. And the angel pointed the way. That stone was rolled away for them. That stone was rolled away for us. But see, can't we admit also, sometimes all we see is the stone. Sometimes that's all we look at. We can't see past the stone to see what Christ has done for us. Sometimes we just look at the great obstacles and say there's no way. 
We need to look at the empty tomb for our hope. Hope because God is all-powerful. Hope because death is not the end. Hope because there is now light in the dark places. Our sin, our guilt, our shame, our feel, our fear, it's all as real as that stone. But see, it has all been rolled away by Him for you. The dark place has been overcome by the light of life. Christ has already removed the stone of sin away between you and God. He has opened the doorway to salvation. He has rolled the stone away for you to gaze in and see what He has done. He has overcome the dark tomb with His perfect light for you and for me. And so the invitation simply is to believe. It is now only for us to believe. For the faith that saves is the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin that He offers eternal life to all who trust in Him and Him alone for it. There is the Gospel of grace. And to those of us who already believe, we are called to proclaim the message of hope. The angel said to the women, go tell the disciples, tell them that Jesus is going to meet them just like He said. So now we are people of hope and people of light to go spread that good news and to say, do you know that the tomb is empty? Can you think about that for a moment? The cornerstone of our faith is that we sit here and we believe that over 2,000 years ago, a man who was God, truly man, truly God, that he actually died a physical death, his body physically was buried and his body was raised back to life by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. We believe a man who walked this earth died and three days later came back to life. What other world religion or faith system believes that? But think about that, church. When you tell people about your faith, that you're a Christian, do you include the resurrection? Do you include that powerful testimony? Does it sound weird to you that you say, yeah, we believe He came back to life? Can you just think about that? Maybe take that just simply to think about this week, that we believe in Jesus who died a physical death but actually came back to life. A bodily resurrection. Not just His spirit. His body. It had to be His body. He had to die a physical death so His blood would be shed to cover sins. But because, and this is the beautiful truth, because He rose again, we have the hope of eternal life. Because Paul tells us many times, I'm going to read it to close our time out, Paul says, without the resurrection, everything else is in vain. The cross is meaningless without the resurrection. Our faith is meaningless. Everything Jesus taught. See church, the resurrection proves that God accepts Jesus as the final payment for the sins of the world. It says that He accepts what Jesus did on the cross for us. He brought Him back to life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. These are the powerful words of the Apostle Paul. If you want to know anything about the resurrection, read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul just spells it out right there. You put that in your notes. 1 Corinthians 15, all about the resurrection. So here's what part of it says, 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, but that means Adam, by a man, meaning Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See church, the ancient Israelites would not be allowed to gather their crop until they brought a small sampling to the temple for the priests as an offering. That small sample of their crop that they were ready to gather and to harvest, that small sampling of wheat, that was called the first fruits. Here is the first fruits that they were told to come and bring to the temple to offer to God. Once that was accepted, they were able to go back and gather the rest of the harvest. Jesus is called our first fruits because he first rose from the dead. But the beauty of it is because he was the first fruits and he was accepted by the Father, that means the rest of us, the harvest, the crop, we then can be gathered by Jesus and have that hope of eternal life. Without Christ coming back to life, we have no hope of life after death. How significant is the resurrection? Paul says further on in 1 Corinthians 15, more about the resurrection. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 50 to 58. He says, Behold, he says, uh, and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is something that hadn't been revealed before, but is now revealed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think that's pretty awesome. Don't you? Paul just spells it out, and he says... If it wasn't for the resurrection, if it wasn't for the resurrection, we would have no hope of life eternal. Because Christ rose and He was the first fruits, church, then we are the ones who are to follow. We are the ones who are to come after. See, what I just read, that is the account of what we call the rapture. When Jesus comes back for His church, He says we will meet Him in the air. Paul says in the twinkling of an eye, and we get to have our glorified bodies. We're all looking forward to that, aren't we? We walk around with our aches and pains and we say, Jesus, when will that be? But we will have perfect bodies made, made perfect for whatever life will look like in His eternal kingdom. We get that body at that moment when He returns for us. 
We all look forward to that. But it's only because that hope, that great hope, is only because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because He rose again, we will rise again. You know what? It also means that all of our loved ones who knew the Lord Jesus, who have died before us, we will get to see them again. It's all because of the resurrection.